Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm not sure whether I'm coming down with a cold or just allergies, so I'll try to stay away from you. We ground a bunch of wheat and corn and barley yesterday, and the dust got me sneezing and my nose running terribly, so it may just be the after effect of that, I hope, and not a cold, but I want to be sure. Marla and I will take off right after the service in any case. Uh, it's not because we have a bad attitude and don't want to stay for potluck, but uh, from now until the last day of the feast, she's not going to see a whole lot of me, so uh, we thought we'd take off and have a picnic maybe out in the woods somewhere this afternoon and uh, spend some time together before it gets, maybe crazy is not the word, but busy, busy, busy uh, from now on. Uh, and the feast, of course, begins next Friday at 7.30 p.m. at Tanner Auditorium or Amphitheater up in Springdale, Utah. Uh, we'll have no phone broadcast that first evening, but we should have it the rest of the time at 10.30 in the morning and uh, at 10.30 and 2.30 on the Sabbaths, uh, which, of which there are only two. The high days happen to fall on the weekly Sabbaths, both at the beginning and the end. So uh, those days we'll have 10.30 and 2.30, and I'm sure we can rehearse that during the feast. Did I put in on there any afternoon services this year? I don't remember whether I did. I have been the last two or three years, but we'll announce that ahead of time if we do. Uh, but 10.30 and 2.30 next Sabbath, uh, and it should be on via telephone. Um, we're having a little trouble getting the line in. I was up there nearly all day Thursday waiting for the... Uh, installer, and then he found that the line was dead for some reason and has to get the main line crew in. Uh, we thought they'd be there yesterday, and they did not show. In fact, AT&T called me and said we didn't get it done yet, so hopefully they'll have it in. We're doing our best to get that done, so if it fails, it's uh, not because we didn't try, but you might keep that in your prayers as well, that we'll be able to get uh, the service there for those who for one reason or another, have to stay home and cannot travel to the feast. Uh, this is a little mundane, but uh, Al Johnson found two apparently new vacuum belts out here on the street, uh, I guess yesterday. So I don't know whether you were walking your vacuum and it threw a belt or what, but or maybe they were new and fell off a four-wheeler or something. I, I have no idea. But uh, he has them in any case if you... Can't vacuum your floor. Yeah, atonement uh, is at 12 noon Monday. 12 noon. We'll have it as a regular time. 12 noon Mountain Standard Time. All the times I gave are Mountain, st mountain Standard Time. You have to deduct or add to based on where you live. And I think most are familiar with that. Now, before I get completely away from dress, we spent quite a bit of time uh, recently talking about modesty, and we've talked more about the ladies than we have the men, but some noticed that I didn't have a necktie on last week, and I don't have one on again today, and some had already stopped wearing them based on some conversations we've had over the last year, year and a half, and some articles that we had read, and... Uh, I didn't say anything last week, partly because I wanted to come without one, 
and uh, that way some of the men who were kind of thinking along those lines would recognize that I didn't have one and I wouldn't have to embarrass them uh, if they still had one on. And let's talk about it a little bit. I'm not going to stand here today and say you simply cannot wear a necktie. Uh, necktie or the necktie has always been a part of church dress since Herbert Armstrong began the modern era of the church. And he was always very uh, adamant about the men, especially the ministry, wearing suits and ties uh, as a formal dress code uh, to services in church. And we have always adhered to that, but over the last couple of years, uh, begun to kind of question the practice and whether it's something we really ought to be doing or not. I have here an article entitled Phalic Worship by Hodder M. Westrop. It was uh, a paper read before the Anthropological Society of London on April 5, 1870. It was later published in 1875. I'm not going to read this article but refer to it in this sense. He goes through in the article and shows that all societies throughout mankind's history, whether the Eastern, Western, Middle East, wherever, uh, have had Felix worship as a primary part of their society. It began a long time ago. We have read books. I know we had quite a few that were being passed around back in the 50s and early 60s uh, about uh, pagan practices, and we find them indeed in Ezekiel and Jeremiah about Christmas trees, Easter eggs, hot cross buns, and so on as being sex symbols, the egg being a symbol of fertility and uh, on and on it goes, the Christmas tree being a symbol of a male sex symbol. And we in the church are familiar with those things. We've addressed them much over the years, perhaps not as much in the last few decades as further back. But we've come to recognize that those things uh, do go back a long way and that they did begin as pagan sex symbols. Now... In ancient Israel, the kings came and the kings went. Uh, sometimes Israel was deep in paganism, and they had groves, which were trees set aside for uh, sex parties and sex worship. Uh, that's just the way they went about it. I think in some cases they may have stripped the limbs off the trees to make them more that way. And in modern America today, we have Washington Monument as our primary uh, phallic symbol, 555 feet high, exact occultic measurements, and sitting right there in our capital as a symbol of male strength, power, uh, however you want to put it. So it's something that has carried over. And this article goes into that. There are many, many such articles. There are many books that have been written on it. I want to read some from... Uh, this article entitled, Necktie, a Felix Symbol by Linford Heron, Centurion Press. Uh, he shows the definition of Felix Symbol. It means relating to a phallus, especially as an embodiment of generative power. Uh, men 
worshipped their own organs over the years and the centuries because they felt they were special, and uh, that carries over to today, to today as well. And women worshipped it because they were supposed to have children and to be fertile and to have lots of children in most societies, and they too adopted the phallic symbol. Uh, those are found in the Bible as well, not just in profane history. Phallus defined uh, the penis or a representation of the penis and testes as an embodiment of generative power or an image of the penis as a symbol of generative power. And that's why you find them throughout history and the artwork and so on uh, because mankind has always looked at it that way and womankind too for that matter. Now this section is necktie as a phallic symbol. It says, much has been written on the significance of dress and the language of clothes. Alison Lurie, fashion historian, writes that, and he quotes from Alison, writes that before we are near enough to talk, our clothes announce our sex, our age, our social class, and possible information or misinformation as to occupation, personality, opinions, sexual desires, and mood. Like any other language, we must choose our words carefully, remembering that meaning depends on the context of the place and circumstances. And then he says, what message does the necktie convey? So, what you wear conveys a message to other people. I, I, don't, I think that goes without saying, really. Uh, perhaps it needs to be said here, but what you wear tells an awful lot about what's in your mind. Now, some things we do by custom and perhaps never even thought of until we began to read and understand paganism and godliness and the difference in between. I was going to comment when I talked about the groves in ancient Israel, that the kings sometimes were reformers, and they would reform only up to a certain point. And you might remember, if you've read through those uh, accounts, but it said they reformed this, they reformed that, but they didn't remove the groves. They always stopped short of that. Now, if the modern necktie is symbolic of what those groves represented, whether we think of it that way or not, is it something that has been foisted off on us and carries within our society that meaning? And if it carries that meaning in our society, what credibility do we have if we, like the business world, wear neckties and the business world looks at us and says, you're religious, but look what you're wearing around your neck. You know, what, what impression does that give them of us as so-called religious people? Just a question to think about. If reformers in ancient Israel stopped short of removing the groves or those sex symbols, do we want to be sure that perhaps we remove that as well and not stop short of it, if indeed that is what it is, or even if there is considerable question about it? Okay, he goes on to say, what message then does the necktie convey? For over 2,000 years, since at least the Quinn dynasty, the necktie or cravat has been the most widely used and the most multicultural of all phallic symbols. The necktie has always been, for a certain class, a celebrated piece of male equipment. 
The ties were a mark of allegiance, wealth, and belonging at a time and, and belonging at a time when cloth was hard enough to come by for clothes, never mind for articles of gratuitous adornment. They told others, both inside and outside the elite, that the bearers of the neck pieces were the people who mattered, the people who belonged. The tie is a pure fashion statement, a useless, unnecessary item of clothing in addition to its symbolic announcement. I'm a man. However, there are other negative attributes associated with the necktie. Indeed, the tie was suitably born soaked in blood. Now, if you read the history of the necktie, uh, many articles will refer you back to when the French went to fight the Croats, and they found that the Croats were wearing uh, colored ties around their necks. It was a military thing, and it established them as elite forces. Uh, in other words, it made them feel special. The military uses ties to a great degree today, and so do all kinds of societies, Boy Scouts, you name it, to mark them as something different. They have a special kind of tie, special, well, they're all shaped about the same, really, when you get right down to it, but special significance with a certain color, certain style. Uh, the tie evolved from the French cravat, a scarf tied around the neck. The French called it a cravat in reference to the Croatians who wore colorful scarves around their neck in battle. Considering its origin and symbolic meaning, why do we t wear ties now? So it was a symbol of war, violence, and blood, in one case, and a symbol of sexual prowess and maleness, on the other hand. Continuing, ties, which both hang flaccidly around the neck to the groin, like a penis, and also point to it, are the very symbol of the phallus, which is so envied by other men and women, not for its actual qualities, as much as the social meaning attributed to the gender of its owner. Men wore ties in business to prove that they were different from women. That should tell you something right there about what it means. The tie is thus a symbol of the domination of men over women and of power in general. Consequently, a ruling was made by a particular group. Uh, and then it refers to a headline that came in Germany. This was in Hanover. Uh, they banned ties from the workplace as phallic symbols, saying that that's what it meant. It was a woman boss who banned it in this company, but she was feeling the pressure that she, as the boss, could not wear a tie because she didn't have the proper equipment. I'm just summarizing this. It goes on to say, I notice that the tie looks suspiciously like an arrow. Now, assuming a tie is an arrow, what is this arrow pointing to? I'll quit reading there. That's probably clear enough. He goes on to say, the world is telling us that the necktie is phallic in origin, but we do not care because we have sanitized it. Uh, I, I think you could say that for some, for some other things. We recognized a long time ago that the heart shape, uh, as it's come down in jewelry and in adornment for women, goes all the way back to Semiramis. Uh, some references will say it was depicted Semiramis's behind. Others will say it depicted her front. Well, in either case, is that what you need to wear as a symbol? Now, we use it today in 
pagan worship as a valentine. And the symbolic meaning there is not be my heartthrob, and it isn't shaped like a heart anyway, it's shaped more female than that. It means be my partner, is what it means, and always has through thousands of years. But see, we have sanitized it today, and now it's more be my heartthrob, be my sweetie, or whatever. But that's not how it began, and that's not what it actually symbolizes by shape. And indeed, if you'll notice ties, very, very frequently they have a fleur-de-lis as a description. If you don't know what that looks like, uh, look up a fleur-de-lis and see. Uh, it kind of depicts the whole apparatus, if you will. And paisley prints are simply uh, a shape of spermatozoa. And that is a very frequent use in men's clothing and especially in ties. Now, can it be done away with? The whole nation of Israel has basically done away with the tie. I don't think for necessarily religious reasons, but maybe for comfort, uh, among other things. But you'll see the prime minister, you'll see the, uh, the people that are in the legislature and so on. In business in Israel, the open collar is the standard dress. They've simply done away with it for whatever reasons they had. Uh, and they can still wear dress clothes or jackets, uh, without having a tie on, uh, as, as many of us, most of us today, are dressed here. All right, let's see. This is uh, an article entitled, 2,000 Years of the Necktie, The History of America's Favorite Father's Day Gift. Uh, male identity is the sub-column. <coughs> Men's neckwear has been made of every kind of material. Silk, cotton, wool, leather, rope, string, lace, linen, rayon, polyester. And whether they were called cravats, jabots, bandanas, bolos, ascots, bootlaces, bows, butterflies, kerchiefs, or simply ties, neckties have been closely linked to the male ego. And he, the author, author makes this comment. My comment and the necktie is a phallic symbol, like the obelisk, that points to the male reproductive organ. Ties have been used to proclaim status, occupation, and even identity, as well as allegiance to a group or cause, often military. The earliest known version of the necktie was born by Shi Huan Tai, China's first emperor. Interesting name for an interesting decoration. Uh, when he, he was in, alive and buried in 210 B.C., and he wanted to slaughter an entire army to accompany him into the next world. And his advisors finally got him to take life-size replicas of the soldiers. And they call this one of the marvels of the ancient world because it was dug up in 1974. And even though historians say that the ancient Chinese did not wear ties... He had different types of soldiers, or those replicas, and representing different parts of the military and so on. And the only thing in common among them all is that they all wore neck claws or ties. So why? That is a mystery that they wonder about. What about Romans? In 113 A.D., one of Rome's greatest emperors, the military genius Trajan, 
erected a marble column to commemorate a triumphant victory over the Dacians who lived in what is now Romania. Always columns to their male military exploits. The 2,500 realistic figures on the column sport no less than three different styles of neckwear. These include shorter versions of the modern necktie, like the bolo, cloth wound around the neck and tucked into armor, and knotted kerchiefs reminiscent of modern cowboy bandanas. So if you think they first got bandanas for riding a trail behind a herd, no, it came from other places. <clears throat> Continuing, while Roman orators often wore clothes to keep their throats warm, soldiers did not cover their necks. In fact, writers such as Horace and Seneca said only effeminate men covered their necks. Interesting. Maybe that's enough of this. I, I don't want to belabor it. Oh. But it appears that even though the necktie, for the most part, is not traced all the way back to Nimrod and Semiramis, it appears to be a modern application of a very ancient custom that was pagan to the core. So I'm not going to say we cannot or should not wear a necktie. Uh, I, I suppose that's up to you but I think I've worn one for the last time of, of any type or style. I, if, if, it, if it smacks of that or suggests it, then I think that it's good to be on the safe side. If it is a representation of ancient groves that God was very upset about, then I want to be sure I don't wear it. And like he said in one of these articles, there's no real need for it anyway. Uh, why do you have to have it on? All it does is constrict your blood flow, and it's been associated with high blood pressure, even with slight pressure. Uh, so it's not really a helpful thing to wear. They're expensive, and who needs it, I guess is the view. And if it is indeed pagan, I'd rather be on the safe side than the sorry side of that and be sure I removed a potential grove, let's say. Like I said to the ladies, be sure that you are modest. Why walk near the edge of the cliff? Be sure. And then you're safe. So I think I'm going to be sure on this one and be in that sense safe. All right. That was, in a sense, part of this series that we've been going through uh, to be sure that uh, we do things appropriately. And we came down to chapter 7 of Matthew last time in this Sermon on the Mount, as they call it. And I'd like to pick it up there and hopefully finish this series today and begin something different on atonement and then again something different uh, for the feast. So let's pick it up in chapter 7, recognizing that Christ here is giving a new covenant, a new agreement, and it is akin to a marriage agreement. Uh, that is the way he characterized his relationship with ancient Israel was as a marriage, and he has told us that he will marry us after he returns as the bride of Christ. That symbolism is throughout the Old and the New Testament, and in that sense, 
he is laying out here the marriage ceremony or the marriage agreement between us and him. And we must be willing to accept this agreement and say, if you will, I do, or I don't. And he's setting the standard pretty high here, making us agree to control our thoughts, control our actions, to think and act just as he thinks and acts. In other words, to be on the same level he is. Now, as human beings, we are not, I don't think, at this point, going to attain to that as physical human beings and probably will not have accomplished it entirely until our change come and the resurrection. Because then our human nature will be changed to divine nature. We can at best today adjust it and try to be divine even though we are very human. And it's difficult to walk that line between walking after the flesh and walking after the spirit. And we probably slip in and out of that on a daily basis, trying to think right, trying to do right, and yet sometimes failing abysmally. So it's a very difficult walk. We'll see that as we get into this chapter. So he sets another standard here, judge not or condemn not, that you be not judged. There's a modern saying that goes here and there that is what goes around comes around. And it is indeed, ultimately, a true saying. As we treat others, God will treat us. He makes it very clear that if we forgive others, back in chapter 6, verse 14, we covered that last week. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So he tells us very clearly here, if we bear grudges, if we bear resentment, if we have unforgiving attitudes, then we are living in an unforgiven state. That makes it absolutely imperative that we forgive others and leave the past behind, for if we don't, our past will also be remembered and we will be judged accordingly. So blessed are the merciful. One of the first verses and one of the first principles he brings out at the beginning of this body of teaching. Merciful and forgiving. Patient. Because if we're not, we're going to be judged just like we judge others. So he emphasizes that from a little different perspective here in chapter 7. Judge not, that you be not judged. And I think the word there, better used or translated, would be condemned. Be careful who you condemn, what you say about them their character, their actions. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. That's scary, isn't it? It is so easy for us to give our opinions about others, to put them down, to be willing to condemn them, what they do, what they think, how they act. It's real easy to be negative and condemnative in our approach. I don't think that that means we can't kid each other about our fault, flaws, our faults, our problems, and so on. But we need to be very, very careful that that does not show an attitude underneath of negativity and criticism and put down 
from a sarcastic or wrong standpoint that we're serious about. I mean, you know, humor is partly what makes the world go round. If we can't laugh at ourselves and laugh at each other, then something's wrong. But on the other hand, if it's serious and is truly a judgment, we'd better be careful. And sometimes it's hard even with our humor not to take it too far. Sometimes we do, and we need to be careful of that. I think that humor is one of the hardest things to handle of anything that we have to handle. Because it's, no, it's hard to know how far to go, how much to say, what to laugh at, what not to laugh at, and to be careful that we are laughing with and not at people and putting them down in our humor. So, something that has to be handled carefully. Verse 3, And why do you behold the mote that is in your brother's eye, but don't consider the beam that is in your own eye? What he's really saying is it's easy to see other people's problems, but it's hard to see our own. You can have a log in your eye and maybe not even notice it, and you'll see a little splinter in someone else's eye, because we are so easily led to judge other people and condemn them for whatever small faults they might have, and we are magnanimous and very forgiving and very patient with ourselves, no matter how big our problems might be. And we are quite adept at justifying our own problems and giving reasons why we may be the way we are and not being too hard on ourselves about it, whereas we can be real hard on other people very, very easily. Or how will you say to your brother, verse 4, let me pull out the mote out of your eye, and behold, a beam is in your own eye. Not only is it easier to recognize other people's problems, or to think we do, but it's also far easier to correct them than to admit and correct our own. We are prejudiced, I guess is a good word to use. We are prejudiced for ourselves and against others. It's the way human nature works. So what does he say about this chain of events? You hypocrite! First cast out the beam out of your own eye, then shall you see clearly to cast out the moat out of your brother's eye. It's a very difficult thing to live up to. But if we are not willing to overcome and grow and change ourselves, then we become hypocrites. And it's easy for others to see that. But it's easy for us to judge others, but we don't like to see our own problems. And we really don't. This is not just words. That's just the way that it is. So it does become hypocritical. And he does say that if we're hypocrites, and that's what he called the Pharisees and Sadducees, didn't he? If we're hypocritical about it, then we'll be judged as hypocrites. And he said that they would not be in the kingdom of God. That the harlots would go in before the Pharisees and Sadducees went in, the leaders of the Jews. I received a letter from someone recently in which they condemned our Passover belief and quoted from Matthew that Christ said, The Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. 
and therefore you have to do everything or whatsoever, as it says in the New King or in the King James, they say. And yet I can show you scriptures, Matthew five fifteen and sixteen, that show Christ's attitude toward those Jewish leaders. He called them snakes and sons of snakes, whited sepulchres, filthy, dirty cups on the inside, and various other things like that. And said, don't do as they say. And then in John 7, 1, it says that Christ himself would not walk in Jewry, would not do as they said. So is there a contradiction there? I don't think so. I think it's a matter of understanding that they had been placed in authority and they were still in authority until Acts 2 and the beginning of the New Testament church when that authority would be transferred to the New Testament church. But in the meantime, they were an authority that was established and you had to, in civil matters and perhaps even in some uh, spiritual matters, bend to them, otherwise you were in trouble. But he made it very clear that everything they were doing was not according to God's way, and he himself would not do it. So when it says whatsoever there, uh, it is a conditional word, apparently, in the Greek, and uh, you always obey God rather than man, Acts 5.29. So when there was a conflict, they would have to do that. But they were still there to recognize the authority of the government. And I think that that is true today of our United States government. You still have to bow to some of the things they say and do a lot of things they say, but at the same time, if they require you to disobey God in any way, no way. We're not required to do that, but we still have to recognize them as authorities that have been put there and to give them a certain respect. I don't know that we ought to call them devils, as the case with some is currently, uh, our president being called a devil by the leader of another country. Uh, certainly, he has some devilish ways, some devilish uh, positions and religion, but I'm not going to call him a devil. Uh, he's been placed there, and God said he placed over the governments the basest of men in Daniel 4. So we have to recognize that they are not godly, and that they certainly are the basest of men, and yet, at the same time, we have to recognize the office that has been given and that God put them there uh, because they don't get in those offices without God passing on it. And he has put and allowed to be put the basis of men and the leadership of the nations today. So we can recognize that, but we still have to give them due respect for the jobs they have been given, whether they're performing, performing them according to God's way or not. And I think that's all that Christ was saying there. Uh, he wasn't telling them, you have to do everything that the Pharisees say, because he wasn't himself. And that would have been uh, pharisaical. But these first five verses show us that we had best be very, very careful in condemning others, because we will be judged exactly as we judge others. Verse 6, Give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast you your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. 
There's a principle here that we need to be very, very thankful for what we have been given, the knowledge we have, and yet we should not present it to swine and cast it before people who would disrespect it, who would put it down, who would hate it. In other words, we need to be very careful even with our own relatives. We saw what reaction they had when we first began to be converted to the truth, and it wasn't pleasant. Sometimes we did not have enough sense or wisdom or understanding yet to know that we ought to just quietly keep our mouths shut and go about doing the things God told us to do. But we tried to convert them. We tried to tell them they were wrong and pagan, and it all came back in our face. They turned and rendered us, didn't they? And in some cases still do because of this religion. So they trampled what we tried to tell them, and they turned and used it against us. So Christ said, be very careful about that. I know people who are going out today, not in this group, but people that I am aware of, who think that they just have to tell the whole world everything we believe. And they get kicked out of restaurants and uh, that kind of thing as a result of trying to parade it out in front of everyone, and those people don't want to hear it. And they turn and rend you. So there is a certain time to preach the gospel and to warn the world, and there is a certain time to pull our horns in and do what we need to do and get ourselves in shape. And if God wants us to use, to use us for that at some point, He can. But that is not the message for the church today. The message for the church today is get the church ready, as Herbert Armstrong told us, and we ignored him for the most part. Anyway, let's go on down to verse 7. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of confusion and doctrine in the churches of God today. We used to call it the Church of God, and it was the only Church of God. And now we have hundreds of organizations that we have to label part of the Church of God. Now, if we find ourselves in that position, what are we to do? We need to get on our knees and ask, to truly seek, to knock on God's door, and ask Him to reveal to us what we need to know. A lot of people in the church, sadly, are not willing to do that, but they just go on with their previous understanding, thinking that it's good enough, and they can just continue on in whatever way they have gone, in spite of the fact of what has occurred. But we need to pay attention to what has occurred and see that something obviously must be missing and go to God and find out. So if there's anything we need or don't understand or have confusion about, then we need to go to the source and find out. All things must be restored here at the end, in some form or fashion, that are correct. And that means we need to ask and seek and knock. He puts it in another place to seek it as gold and silver, to really search. Gold fever, truth fever. For everyone that asks receives. And he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. So he's telling us, if you want to know what I'm thinking, you want to know what you ought to do and how you ought to think, come to me and find out. 
And he uses a simple physical analogy here to get that across. Verse 9, For what man is there of you, whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Stones are pretty much everywhere, and they're pretty cheap. Your child says, Daddy, I'm hungry. Please give me some food. How many of us would hand him a rock? Here, suck on this. No, we wouldn't do that. Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? Why don't you just eat snake tonight, son? No, we're not going to do that. Well, God loves us more than we love our own children. So, if we ask truth of him sincerely, he's going to reveal it. He's going to give it to us. Verse 11, if you then being evil, are we evil? He called his disciples evil, didn't he? He's talking to his disciples here. You then being evil. That should tell us what human nature is. Human nature is an evil nature. It tends toward negative. It tends toward evil. It does not tend toward uplift. It does not tend toward uh, doing things right, but doing things wrong. You can look at a world today with six and a half billion people on it. Which way is it tending to go? Do people tend to lie and cheat and steal and commit adultery and fornication? Do people tend to cheat each other in business? Do corporations run over the little guy and give him as little as possible so that their bottom line can be as big as possible and they can give their CEOs hundreds of millions of dollars while they pay you a pittance per hour as slaves to them? How does human nature tend to go? How many people have been killed in wars by evil men seeking riches and power? How many families have been left without the fathers because fat old men somewhere wanted to send all the young men out to make sure that they could be wealthy and stay in power? Been a lot of it. Can you say human nature is good? I think not. Christ said right here to his disciples, you then, being evil of yourselves. A lot of people like to think of themselves as good. But that's not natural. That's not the way it tends to go. Have you ever noticed children playing among themselves? How envious, how jealous, how selfish they can be? How many of you mothers have ever raised kids that didn't fight over toys? Or fight over who got the biggest piece of pie, or whatever it might be. No, you had to intervene all the time in fights and squabbles. Because human nature is essentially, and intrinsically, and of itself, selfish. So, if you then, even with the nature we have, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? He is far more willing to give us good than we are to our children. Now, it doesn't always seem that way, does it? Why? Because many are the afflictions of the righteous, and through much tribulation enter the kingdom, and scriptures like that that show us that this life is not easy, and God does not make it easy. And yet it is, it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. So, this human life is a conditional situation. 
If we will learn to live and walk by the Spirit instead of the flesh, God will give us any and everything we have ever desired. He'll give us long life, that is, eternal life, never-ending. He will give us peace, never-ending. There'll never be a squabble, never be another fight, never be another war. He will even make it so that we will never cry another tear. I can't imagine it. We'll never feel badly enough that we could cry ever, ever again. That's beyond our comprehension. That's what he's promised us. So is he willing to give us of the good things? He's promised us anything we could possibly have ever dreamed of is what he has promised us. Now, the reason things have to be tough right now is because we have trouble accepting the promises he has made to us. Because we, being evil by nature, would rather be selfish and sensual and greedy and covetous, every negative human emotion. We are unwilling to give those up. And therefore, we have to go through trials and tests so that we can learn to be as he is, giving from the heart. He'll explain that a little more as we go on here. He would love to give us, as he did Adam and Eve, everything they could have asked for. What did he give them? A beautiful home, a wonderful garden, no weeds, no thorns. Didn't need fertilizer, didn't need to irrigate, didn't have to water it, didn't have bugs bothering the crop. They had perfect weather. I mean, the temperature was micromanaged. When you didn't need clothes to wear from the heat or the cold, the temperature was just right. Perfect. Always. Never bad weather. Could things have been any better than that? They didn't have to work by the sweat of their brow and wreck their bodies, their knees, their backs, their heads, their arms, doing the kind of labor we have to do today to survive? No. Their living was there. All they had to do was just dress and keep the garden, keep it trimmed up, keep it... Uh, you know, any dead wood trimmed away, prune it, I suppose. I don't know what all it entailed, but the conditions were perfect, and there was always plenty of food and everything they could possibly need. But what happened? Just a little selfishness, a little envy, a little curiosity about things that were none of their business, and bang, look how we've been ever since. Now, God wants to restore that, and that's what this whole process is about, of the original marriage to Israel and the new covenant, because Israel still was selfish. Now he's given us his Holy Spirit to help us so that we are not selfish anymore, but always willing to give, serve, help, and as he'll say, not let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. Not keeping score, 
just helping wherever we can help, making others' lives better, easier, rather than grasping and greedy and materialistic like the rest of the world is. That's why we talked last week about not taking anxious thought. If we worry about money and things, then our focus is wrong. We should work for a living, but at the same time, we shouldn't worry about what we have or don't have. Go to God, ask Him to give us work, to give us whatever we need to make sure that we're covered and fed. But beyond that, hey, don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. Because we have a selfish, materialistic society, and that's all they do is worry about it. That's their focus in life. God is willing to give us. We are just not willing to accept. That's the problem. We are not willing to accept His way of life and say, all right, if we'll live this way, we'll receive this gift. Instead, we are grasping and greedy, and we want, to, we want God to give us all those things that we desire, but we want to do it our way instead of His way. That's the evil part of our nature. I want it, but I want it my way. And big corporations play on us. Which one is it? Burger King? Have it your way? Have it your way. You deserve a break today. You are wonderful, and you should have this wonderful thing that I'm giving you. I read an article this morning about um, one of these artificial sweeteners, and it's killing dogs. The veterinarians put a warning out about it. Uh, one dog ate four muffins and died. It destroys the liver. Uh, they use it in gum. They use it in candies. They use it in various things that people eat. And uh, veterinarians have warned it'll kill your dog. But the medical profession doesn't warn that it'll kill us. The FDA hasn't banned it because of liver disease in dogs. So you can buy gum and chew artificial sweetener thinking you're not having sugar, and you may die of liver disease. I guess it's up to you. All right, verse 12. Therefore... Considering God's attitude toward us and His willingness to give, if we're willing to follow His conditions, not our own. Therefore, all things, whatever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. On this, or, or for this, is the law and prophets. It's the whole message of the whole Old Testament, of the law and the prophets, is to treat people like you would like to be treated. Is that such a bad deal? Really? Is that grievous or onerous to us that we should treat others as we would want to be treated? How do you want to be treated? With love, with respect, with kindness, with faithfulness, with respect? I guess I said that twice. There are a lot of things you would like to treat, be treated kindly, lovingly, wouldn't you? Gently, sweetly. 
But our downfall is we don't want to treat other people that way. We just want to be sure we are not disrespected. Be sure we are treated in ways that make us feel good. That's what it's all about. Chapter 22. I think I'll turn back to that one. Verse 39. Or verse 37. Here's where the young man asked him in verse 36, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the greatest one? Jesus said to him, You shall love the eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is very similar to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything that was said in the Old Testament was directed at this. That we love God above all, and that we love mankind commensurately. The first four commandments, as we understand, are pointed toward God, and the last six toward our relationship with man. And that summarizes everything that was written. So if they say, well, hey, you guys are off on prophecy too much. Well, what did the prophets teach? Love toward God, love toward man. That was their message. It had to do with our conduct. It didn't have the time, anything to do, basically, except in a few places, with when Christ would return to the earth. It had a lot of, to do with the end-time events and why God is going to punish the world. That's the message of the prophets, is because we don't love God in His ways, and we treat men like manure. Worldwide. So His message is, I am going to destroy the earth because you treat me and your fellow man with disrespect, vanity, ego, and selfishness toward yourself rather than giving to Him. I'm going to judge you just like you judge others. So the whole message of the Bible is live a godly life, have a right relationship with Him and a right relationship with human beings. That's what this is all about. Every word in the Bible is pointed at this. So then he says in verse 13, Enter you in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate. Or the straight here doesn't mean necessarily straight like an arrow, but it means difficult, hard. Straight is the gate, oh, enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in that gate. That's the common way. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. People in the Protestant world and the Catholic world have trouble understanding that the New Covenant only applies to a few thousand people. That's all. They think they're under the New Covenant, but they're not. They have not repented and been baptized. They have not received God's Holy Spirit. And they are not Christian, even though they call themselves Christian. They worship a false Christ, false pictures of him, 
false beliefs, and paganism. And yet they call them, they think that they're on the way to the kingdom. They've made religion very simple. Just be, believe in the Lord and you'll, you'll be saved. And once saved, always saved. It's not difficult, it's not hard, all you've got to do is accept the Lord. And that's all that religion amounts to. Is that what we've been reading here? <laughs> no, what I've been seeing, I've been seeing here the standard's pretty tight, pretty tough. But he wants us to live and act and think like he does. That doesn't come easy for us. That's why it's a hard, ruddy, uphill road. is because we're fighting our human nature every step of the way. Human nature does not want to change and begin to think and react like God. We don't want to do that. And it doesn't matter whether we're converted or unconverted. Even if we have God's Spirit, His mind to some degree, that human nature tries to override it. That's why Paul could say, after all those years, even as an apostle, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I wind up doing. So he, he was in a battle every day. Who will deliver me from this body of sin and death, he said. Only through our Savior. It's the only way. It's not easy. If you think it should be easy, you've read a different book. Maybe you've read a Protestant book. But if you're reading this book, he says it's tough, and only a few will find their way. Verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. There are a lot of false prophets in the world today who will tell you it's easy. There are even a lot of them in the church of God today who say, all you have to do is be in my Philadelphian organization and you have it made. It is a form of Protestantism. It is a form of self-worship and self-adulation. And no man can promise you that. It's between you and God. No man can follow you around. No man can monitor everything you say, everything you think. And I would be loath to try. Between you and God. Now, it's my job to warn you, to let you know what you're in for. Before you were baptized, they supposedly and hopefully made you count the cost made you look at it, commit to it, hopefully very deeply, but a lot of people didn't commit that deeply, and they left the truth so rapidly, so quickly. How deeply have you committed your life, your mind, your heart, to Almighty God who can give you everything that any human being could ever want? I mean, even as children, maybe you're not called yet, Maybe you don't understand fully yet, but even a child is known by his actions and his deeds, what kind of child he is. And there are promises in here for our children, for the end-time children, about living in the millennium. You'll still be physical, you still have marriages, children, but you'll be under Garden of Eden conditions rather than this dog-eat-dog, -dog, corrupt lying, thieving, cheating world we live in today. 
And I think that there are little ones right here in this room that will live into that millennium if they are obedient and not rebellious against their parents. And God says they will be protected as a result of their parents' obedience and teaching them of right ways. So we as parents have a tremendous responsibility to see that our children are sanctified or set apart for a holy use by the way that we conduct our lives. How you live may well determine the fate of your children, whether they die in tribulation or live on into the world tomorrow and have everything that they could have desired in a physical way. Now, when I talked earlier, it was about us never having tears. There'll be some tears in the millennium. There'll be some wars even toward the end of the millennium as people rebel against God. So ultimately, in a spiritual life, there'll be no tears, no more pain, and the past things will be forgotten. But you'll still have an Edenic existence. There'll be no divorces. There'll be no murders. There'll be no rapes. There'll be no children shooting the principal at school like just happened a couple days ago and killing a girl as well. Dragging a woman to death behind a car in Texas. These things won't happen anymore. This won't be allowed. Someone will say behind you, don't do that. This is the way, walk in it. You can live in that kind of world if you respond. You don't have to be converted. You just have to live the right way and have the right attitudes and trust that God will take care of you through all that is about to happen on this earth. He is very concerned about each and every one of you, very deeply concerned, and loves you more than any parent can possibly, as a human being, love you. He wants you to respond to him. Believe it or not, there is a God. I can sit out and look at the stars at night, as I did for a while last night, in fact, and just muse and think about those things. Those stars couldn't be there. They didn't just evolve. The dogs, the goats, the horses, the cows, the various things we have in this land right here couldn't just evolve. They didn't just develop themselves. We understand that, I think. But God isn't really real to us in everyday life because maybe we are too disassociated from the creation that he has made. And we need to take time to appreciate the beauty of the environment around us. Environment around us. Yes, it has thorns. Yes, it has evil bugs and snakes and various things that would harm us and hurt us because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. But it also shows the glory of God as we look at the beauty of his creation and the mountains around us and various things that he's made. Romans 1 says that God is seen through his creation. So we need to take time to appreciate the things that God has created. Even our own bodies. How did your eyes and your ears come to be without being designed and made? There is someone bigger than all of us. And if he could make this earth and this universe, he ought to be deservative of our respect. But beware of false prophets, because they'll claim 
that you don't have to do anything. It's just once saved, always saved. Or to tell you that because of their leadership, you don't have to worry, you'll be protected. That's a very common thing in the churches of God today, and it is a lie spoken by false prophets. Because your relationship with God is what it's about. And we'll see that in the book of Ezekiel shortly. God willing. And we get there. Verse 16. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Do you ever go out to a thistle bush and try to get figs? Thorn bush and try to get grapes? Well... Every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. What are the fruits? Somebody said to me just recently, well, that's not so, or that's just your opinion. My reply was, what are the fruits? What do I see before my very eyes? I see the fruits of a certain way of living. And God says that we are to look at and analyze those fruits. What are they? What about what we are doing right here as a group? What are the fruits of it? Are we getting more carnal? Are we getting more selfish? Are we being told that if we're in this room, we're okay and we'll make it into a place of safety in the kingdom of God? Or are we producing the fruits of getting closer to God, of bringing into reign and into check our human nature, and being told to examine ourselves and be very, very careful of what we think and do. And are we making progress? I think the fruit of what you see right here is, in that sense, good. Because I see in you a people that was a lot different than you were three and a half years ago when we moved on this place. I can see growth in you. I think that you have dedicated your lives to becoming more like God and obeying Him more carefully, not more liberally. So I think the fruit, in that sense, is good. And I appreciate it, and I know God appreciates it. I think you are getting more like God than you are like the world. That's what we've all been preaching and teaching and trying to live up to. Does that mean we're perfect and I can say, because you're here, you have it made? Not by any means. We will be judged by how we judge. We will be condemned by how we condemn. We will be forgiven based on how we forgive. We will be judged based on how we treat others and whether we do to them as we would want to be treated and our relationship with God. I can't say how much we've grown. I can't say what our standing is with God other than to look at the fruits and say, is this a people that is becoming more merciful, more loving, less judgmental, less condemning, or not? You know, he tells us here to look at the fruits. To beware of those false prophets which tell you that it would be easy, and we'd better listen when they raise their voice like a trumpet and tell us our sins. So that, why? Is it just to make us feel bad about ourselves? Is that why you get the tough messages you get, just so we can feel bad? No, I don't want you to necessarily feel bad. I want you to do good, so that you can feel good. 
And we need to look at our own personal, individual lives and say, am I getting more merciful, more patient, more loving, more kind, more gentle? Am I more willing to serve or less willing to serve? Am I selfish in my approach or willing to give of my time, my energy, my thoughts, my prayer, my physical goods, whatever it might be, to help and to serve and make other people's lives easier? That's what this is all about. On this hang all the law and the prophets. And if we're to judge by the fruits, we need to look at it and see. Am I changing? Am I growing? Am I becoming more like God, or am I slipping the other direction? You've got to judge by the fruits, whether it be the ministry, or it be by your own lives and those around you. We can't be blind, can we? You may be afraid to examine your own fruits. Sometimes I start looking at my life and myself, and I can get discouraged pretty easily because I don't feel like I'm living up to being like Christ, like my Father in heaven. I have many failings, many weaknesses, many attitudes, but I have to fight. It doesn't come easy. But I hope you'll be patient and merciful with me as well because I'm a human being with human nature, and I, by nature, am evil just as his disciples were. And it's a fight that we have to fight every day of our lives. And if we don't see that it's a fight, we don't even understand what it's all about. We don't even know why we're here. On this earth. I don't mean in this group. I mean on this earth. If you don't recognize that your nature is contrary to God and the heart is, human, is deceitful and desperately wicked then you don't even begin to understand what man and Satan and God are all about. You don't have a clue. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. This is a spiritual analogy. He refers to us as trees. And if we have good fruit in our lives, we'll be digged and dunged and pruned, fertilized, worked with, so that we produce more fruit. But if we don't produce good fruit, he'll cut us down and throw us in the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not the wonderful things that the preachers might say, or the prophets, but by the fruit that they produce in themselves and in you, for that matter. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Doesn't James say, not the hearers only, but the doers will be saved? That's what Christ tells his disciples right here. You can cry, Lord, Lord, Christ, Christ, Jesus, Jesus, all you want to cry. But unless you do the will of the Father, unless you have a special relationship with our Father in heaven and with other human beings, you will not be in the kingdom of God. We like to divide it up as people in religion. We like to think that our relationship with God is good, 
and people we kind of tolerate, but, you know, we're a little better than they are in our own mind. And yet Paul says to esteem others better or higher than yourself. That does not come naturally, does it? Do you naturally think of your brothers and sisters as better than you? Why do we have sibling rivalry and jealousy and fighting then? Why do we, as brothers and sisters in the church, have disputes? It's because we respect our opinions, our knowledge, our way, our thinking, higher than someone else's. And therefore, there is conflict. So just saying, I'm a Christian, doesn't get the job done. We have to live it. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name cast out devils, and in your name done many wonderful works? They'll try to show all the wonderful things they've done, all the wonderful attitudes they've had, and how Christian they've been. Then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Does that sound like once saved, always saved? I don't think so. Why did Paul, if he was once saved, always saved, and always then would have the grace of God, say, I must be careful, for after I preach to others, I might find myself a castaway? What does castaway mean? That means you were cast into the fire. And he felt that there was a danger that that could happen to him, even after he had preached to others, because he still had this war going on in his own body and mind. All right, then he gets positive after saying that. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock, had a powerful, solid foundation. And the rain descended, floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon the rock, upon Christ, who is the strongest thing that we can build on. The only thing, really, that we can build on, through, because through him only can salvation be achieved through the Father. So, if we have built our foundation on him, then no matter what comes, breaking up of the church, or the arrival, the arriving or arising of false prophets, trials, troubles, temptations, difficulties, straight and narrow gate that's uphill, whatever. It won't beat our spiritual house, our spiritual temple down, because we founded it upon the rock. That our relationship is truly with him, not upon a man, what did we do in Worldwide? Did so many base it on Herbert Armstrong being a good preacher or his son? Did they base it on a few truths that they recognized, like Sabbath, holy days, clean and unclean meats, and so on? But they didn't really base it on a relationship with the Eternal. And therefore, when trouble came, they so easily dumped it and went elsewhere, forgot it, or accepted false doctrine. 
Everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not shall be likened to a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The shifting, sifting sands. Something that is unstable, something that can be washed out very easily. And as it's washed out, it caves in or floats off. Now, we have no choice where we live but to build, in some cases, on sand. Well, no, there's just sand on top. It's hard clay underneath, isn't it, right here? Try digging it, and you'll find out. But it's a spiritual analogy. You, you build on whatever is there. A lot of times you pour concrete on the sand to make sure that there's something heavy, something solid there that will withstand whatever nature has to bring. What about our spiritual house? Is it founded on something solid so that we're going to survive? Or is it on shifting, sifting sands? And great will be the fall if it occurs. I saw a lot of men who were looked upon as great in the church, pillars in the church, not only in terms of office like evangelists and pastors and so on, but even local people who... Everyone in the, the congregation have thought, well, there's a pillar. There's someone you could depend on, no matter what. And they left the first day. Just gone. How good is our judgment? <laughs> you know, people that we had judged would still be here or gone. And people we thought would never make it are still around. You just couldn't call it, could you? You can't see in the minds and hearts like God can to what is really there. Now, we can make judgments, can't we? But often our judgments about people are wrong. You never know until it gets down to the nitty-gritty who has it and who hasn't. Who has a deep commitment and who doesn't. Who is play-acting or hypocritical and who isn't. You never know until the times get rough. That's why God put rough times on Abraham. Go kill your very own only son that I promised you and you had to wait so long for. Okay. Then after Abraham went through the whole thing and was right there a split second from slicing his son's throat, God said, Now I know. There's no doubt left in my mind that I can found a spiritual people by and through you and your seed. He had to know. With you and me, God has to know. He judges by the fruits. He judges by the actions. He judges by whether we have a right relationship with Him and a right relationship with human beings. And if we are merciful and kind and forgiving and non-judgmental and condemning, then He'll be that way with us. But if we're the other way, that's the way he'll judge us. It's a scary proposition. But the upside is awfully good. We'll do it right. We'll be given everything we could have ever hoped and dreamed of and more. Because our hopes and our dreams are limited. Our imaginations are limited by our own humanity. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes, who were wishy-washy, 
But he taught with power, with authority, with meaning, and he could back it up. It doesn't say how many people. We had the question at the very beginning of this section of Scripture about how he came, went up on the mountain, and when he was said, his disciples came, and he taught them. It says the people here, and I presume a few people may have come up, but notice chapter 8. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Not as he went up the mountain, but as he came down the mountain. So there may have been a few who filtered up and overheard his, this discussion with his disciples and followers, but the multitude stayed down and waited till he came down, and then they followed him. So this is really, to us, a laying out of the marriage ceremony of the conditions of the marriage, of what we will accept or not accept. If we're going to marry Christ, these are the conditions that he requires of us as a bride. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Pretty well summarized this whole book right here. And even, even within this small summary, he summarizes and says, love God, treat your neighbor as you would want to be treated, and on this... The whole Bible hangs. The whole future hangs. All of religion hangs. All of human existence hangs. Now, there's a lot of detail in here to explain to us how to do that, but that's really what it all boils down to. So if you think you can just worship God and leave man out and become an island yourself, you've got another thing coming. Because our relationship with human beings has a great deal to do with God's judgment of us, how we treat others. And in fact, in Matthew 25, he says, you brought me water, you brought me food, you fed me when you fed, clothed, and gave to drink other people. So a great part of our eternal judgment depends upon how we treat each other and therefore then how we respond to God. So this is his standard for us right here. This book, more particularly and in summary, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and even in greater summary, relationship with God and relationship with man. That is how we will be judged. And we will be judged just exactly as we judge others.